Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That's your time. Promise that we will take good care of it today. You're in for a treat and I hope that you'll come away armed for the battle that we all face, energy transition and growing your career and your business. If you're new here, I really look forward to your feedback and I hope you'll stick around all the way to the end where you'll learn how you can give me your feedback directly or tell others what you think of this show. Today's entrepreneur is Andrea Barber, the CEO and co-founder of Rated Power. This is a software company based in Spain. For those of you who know me well, you know I have a soft spot for Spain. Now, Rated Power has optimized over a terawatt of solar energy in more than 150 countries around the world. And for the last 10 years, Andrea led operations and opening of countries for Spanish renewable energy firm down in Brazil and Latin America before jumping headfirst into her own entrepreneurial venture. She was also recently chosen by Forbes as one of the 100 most creative people in business in Spain. And today, we're going to dig into why, how, when, and under what circumstances she had the crazy idea to start a business. If you like what you hear here on Suncast, I hope that you'll subscribe to the show. That's going to ensure that you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out the back catalog, more than 400 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. Really special thank you to our sponsors. You'll hear more about them later in the show, and you can check them out also on the sponsor link at mysuncast.com. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. I'm looking forward to today's conversation, and I know that you are too, especially if you are building large-scale solar projects uh, or if you've worked at all in Latin America. I think you'll particularly find today's interview interesting, but also we're talking with someone who is an up-and-coming, I would say, influencer, a female executive in the power industry. Let's all admit that's a rarity, unfortunately, still. And I think Andrea is doing a, a marvelous job of building a team with her teammates that is tackling one of the more important, albeit somewhat mundane, pieces of the business, which is how do we build better solar projects and how do we do it faster and how do we do it with more accuracy? We're going to get into this conversation all about how you've developed a PV modeling software that effectively vastly accelerates the efficiency for design and yield analysis for broadly utility scale PV solar plants. Before we get into all of those details, which I know you can't wait to hear, first, let me welcome Andrea to the show. Good to see you. Hi, Nico. Thank you so much for having me here at Suncast. It is my pleasure to to do so. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, it's rare that I actually get to interview a fellow podcaster. So we'll... (laughs) (laughs) Much more amateur than you. (laughs) Ah, well, hey, look, we've all, we all start somewhere, right? As they say, a thousand miles starts with a single step. And uh, you're very much, you're you're further off the starting line than than most of the folks I know in the industry 
who uh, <laughs> who have podcasts. Uh, but Andrea, you uh, you were born and raised in a place that I call sort of my my homeland. It's a, I, I didn't know it until uh, I think I was twenty one when I went to live and work and and go to school in Spain. But you grew up in Spain. I'd love to hear a bit about the the family life. Were was your family particularly entrepreneurial minded? Did they have a sense of where they thought you should or would go in a career? What was that like as you were growing up? Not at all. It's funny because my parents and many members of my family are scientists. My parents mm. are both a PhD in chemistry. They met at university, wow. at college. And I was used to those conversations at dinner um, for mm-hmm. years. I thought that that was where my path, my career path um, would end up, could go. And I've always been very interested in innovation, in science, yeah, and also having good grades in school. All the teachers expected me to do medicine, for example. And for years, I thought that this could be my path. But the truth is that I, I've changed many times my my mind. Um, wow. I even thought about studying marine, marine biology, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm a very, very curious person and there are so many subjects and, and matters that interest me and I would love to study about. But since I was quite young, um, I used to see opportunities everywhere. And one day I remember my my mom told me to write down these ideas in a notebook and and that's what I did for years. I still have my notebook with all the different ideas that I used to carry and have. I love that. I, I think I'm, I think I'm going to start asking a question that is the question I would have asked that you just answered, which is, uh, you know, was there a particular moment in time that you remember, uh, the first, that first entrepreneurial spark. And for you, it sounds like you were very curious and, uh, idea prone as a child, as, uh, as I find m- many entrepreneurs are, w- were there any early signs that you were able to take those ideas and actually turn them into something useful for other people around you? Not really. Uh, I I wouldn't even. I wasn't even sure about what to do, um, what mm-hmm. to study. I used to do many different things. I used to love a lot of different things, but I, I wasn't sure about it. Um, so I did. I decided to study business in and also languages because I love mm. them. I love um, meeting new cultures, traveling, uh, internationalization, helping companies to go abroad. So that's why I decided to do business and then study a masters in in external commerce. I remember when we spoke first, you had mentioned that you have a background in engineering. What's the connection with engineering and business if you if you study business in college? Um, no, I didn't study engineering, but I ah. started, I've always worked in engineering companies. And ah, okay. since my first job, I've always worked in engineering teams. Got it. And I used to work for an engineering consultancy firm. And I, I opened the subsidiary of that company in Brazil. So I used mm-hmm. to work as project manager and um, I built the, the engineering team there. So I've always linked, I've always been very linked to the engineering world. Wow. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to probably ask some questions here about a non-engineer managing engineering people and building a team around it, because that's not particularly uncommon, but it takes a certain skill set. Can you tell me when it first occurred to you that there was an opportunity around solar energy or, or more broadly, renewable energy as a, as a category of work place that you could actually sort of call a career path? So it was very natural to me. I, I love nature. I love mm-hmm. outdoor activities and sports. When I decided to go to move to Brazil, one of the reasons was um, because 
of the nature there and traveling in a, such a big country. Um, so I really wanted to do something with impact and I was quite concerned about the energy transition. I also thought, I think that we spend a lot of time working in our lifetime. So I wanted yeah. to do something that really made me feel good and it had a positive impact in the society. And that's why I chose um, renewable energies. And I went after a lot of companies working in that field. And I was really clear on that, that I just wanted to work in renewables. I feel like it's not that common that someone chooses the renewable energy field, right? Most of us, myself included, we sort of stumble into it. Yeah, in my team, it's the same. No, I, I don't know many people that just selected that specific field. That's, that's brilliant. Did you have in your mind a sense or an idea of where you saw the industry going? Like, How did you envision that you were going to position yourself to be a part of the renewable energy boom? I didn't know. I knew uh, it was starting in many countries in, at the beginning of my career, I worked mostly with wind farms. I started working in solar in the like six, seven years ago. And um, I don't know, I thought I found it fascinating and I thought it, it had such a great potential, all the different mm -hmm. technologies, all the like the advances, all the different right. innovations that existed every year. And also the potential of going global and this uh, internationalization, this potential of meeting people around the world and working in different countries and cultures. When the opportunity to move to Brazil presented itself, was it something that you saw coming at the company you were working for and said, hey, I want that? Or were you groomed for the opportunity to take this company international? So I had spent one year in France and in my, my college, and then I moved to San Francisco for a year. And then I moved to Brazil because I wanted to live there. I wanted to learn another language. And ah, you moved from San Francisco to Brazil without a job? No, uh, working for the embassy. I got I, it. Uh, oh wow, for yeah. the Spanish embassy. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Help so me. we missed the whole piece of the story. <laughs> so I, I decided that I wanted to go to Brazil, and I ended up. Um, I did. Um, I was selected in a program that is really hard to get in. And they send you to any country of, of the world to work for a year in an embassy to help. You Spanish. choose. Yeah, you choose depending on their grades of on the masters, um, the ranking. If you have good grades, um, you can go to, potentially go to the to the country that you selected. So I missed a piece of the story. You went to Brazil because you had been selected into this this highly competitive process and went down on behalf of the Spanish government. Where's the nexus with the company that you helped basically open up in Brazil? Which now I totally understand how it positioned you really well to be be a bridge and to be that person for them. So after that year, I came back to Spain and I decided that I wanted to help Spanish companies to, I saw a huge potential of renewable energies in Brazil. I wanted yeah. to work in the renewable energy field. I didn't know anything about it. So I started learning and studying a little bit and I went after yeah. companies that were in Spain and might um, have a good chance to, to go to Brazil to open a subsidiary. So I was hired by, by one of these companies and at the beginning, they didn't know quite well if they wanted to go to Brazil. They knew they wanted right. to expand. Um, and we prepared an expansion plan and we studied which countries were suitable. Um, Brazil at the time was growing 6% rate annually. What time frame is this? 2010. 
And it was when the, the renewable energy crisis came to Spain. It was in 2008. Yeah. So most of the companies in Spain had a, a, a big know-how and a lot of resources that they needed to, to use and to, to expand to other countries. Because in Spain, the, the industry wasn't really friendly at that time. The company that we're referring to is, is Solida. Exactly. Right? Okay. I don't know a ton about Solida in, in Spain, but certainly the name is recognizable by many of us who have done business in Latin America. But one of the things that you mentioned a pre just a minute ago is that you first started working in wind. I, I love this about your background because your goal was to help expand in the way you just stated, an Iberian company that had deep roots and experience that could go into uh, a company like Brazil and find good partners and basically transfer knowledge and skills and, and leverage the, the Spanish know-how. And, you know, having worked in Latin America during that same period of time, there were dozens, probably hundreds of companies like that. Um, what a fantastic opportunity in your 20s to be able to step into a role like that. When did it become clear to you that the solar market in Brazil was going to be a big opportunity? It was a Approximately in 2014, when um, mm. the first the companies that already work in salary in other countries started to see started to see a potential, they started showing up at the conferences. <laughs> yeah, and also the government started organizing yeah. energy auctions and and facilitating a little bit the bureaucracies and the the government laws. You'll remember this: the Intersolar, I think, was a pavilion at like one of the bigger conferences in 2013, 14, 15, like that time frame. Yeah. And I remember going to the intersolar pavilion or like the, 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 the solar pavilion. And it was bigger as a, as a, like a subset, uh, as, than most of the conferences we were attending in Latin America It was like, as a sub conference, it was bigger than just about every other conference in Latin America on solar. And that opened my eyes. And I was like, Holy smokes. Like makes sense. Brazil's a gigantic country. It's long, long history with renewables. Wind energy had become firmly entrenched there. Was there a particular policy or, movement within the the Brazilian sort of energy regime that led you to believe that this was going to be a a worthwhile expenditure for Solida? And I, I mean, in particular, like it's, it, it was not uncommon, as we've seen in Latin America, for there to be boom and bust kind of government handouts of projects under the shroud of an, R, an RFP. A lot of folks were worried about that early on. So I'm curious, what did you see that said to you, this is actually a business opportunity that's going to last for many years to come? It was because the energy ministry organized the first energy auction and they they started. There were a, a lot of companies interested in in trying to make solar work there and yeah. an organization called Ave Solar, AB Solar. Uh -huh. And we just together every month and yeah, we organized like a lobby and we we started trying kind of pressuring the government to, to organize an energy auction. As you saw... Brazil as a microcosm of the larger, not just sort of Latin America, but global transition for energy away from fossil fuels, kind of adding renewable, adding wind, then adding solar, and then eventually adding storage. What were some of the early, I want to call them learnings that, that became apparent to you? Or were there any revelations that you had about the deficiencies in the industry and how we as an industry needed to take specific steps to be able to move forward and scale? Yeah, what I, f what I suffered or what I saw in, during my period there was a lot of opportunities. I saw that all the different technologies in renewable energies were starting to, to work there. The first 
energy plants were starting to be built, but no mm-hmm. one was doing anything in O&M. I saw a lot of potential opportunities and we even started to, to build our own other companies within Solida and everything. Um, what I saw that it, it was really inefficient, many of the mm-hmm. engineering processes that we we used to provide and all the companies were all the companies were suffering the same pains and I thought that there were a lot of potential of of digitalization and making things much faster. While working at Solida, you began to build relationships with some other folks in the company. As you come back to headquarters, you naturally uh, all of you are uh, working together long hours, late nights. What were some of the early conversations that ultimately sparked the idea between you and what I believe are your co-founders to give entrepreneur entrepreneurship an opportunity to step out from the safety net and try to start your own business. What were some of those early milestones? So I came back from Brazil to, to Spain and I used to spend more time with the two persons that are my, co- my co-founders at Rated Power now. And one day we were speaking and we were just putting in common how inefficient were many of those processes. And each of us have a different capacity and we are very multidisciplinary uh, founding team in and it was very interesting because I was in this in the business side and I had a lot of visibility in, in business but they were one of them was the one doing detailed engineering of solar plants and the other one was doing like modeling production calculations and one day we said why don't we suggest um, the company to to try just to to innovate and to do a software to automatically do this and just convert like four weeks of engineering into just um, a software platform that does does that automatically. And that's how we started. It was really like, we didn't think too much about this. It's true that the three three of us were quite into entrepreneurs. We always had a lot of ideas about doing things different and starting new subsidiaries or new companies within Solida and new projects. So it was like very natural and I think was the perfect timing for us. So the gap that you identified early on is you as a business development person feeling the sense that maybe even like proposals or like, you know, preparation for RFPs was just being turned around very slowly. Talking internally, your counterparts in the technical team were saying, you know, there are ways that we can optimize this. And you ideated around taking something that ordinarily would take four weeks and effectively turning it into four minutes, right? Like, which operationally would make everyone's life life easier. I'd like to understand two things. At what point was it clear to you, all right, it's time to step out and do this on our own. And then at the same time, these two people are the right two people to do it with. I think it was also natural because it was a time of digital technologies, like will probably wouldn't be able to do this five years ago. But it was really like Amazon Web Services started operating. We had like all the information in the internet. We could just, mm-hmm. we didn't know how to code. Um, we weren't right. software developers. Um, Juan had a little bit more ex- of experience with this, but he was out, he was just learning by himself. And, but we thought that it was the perfect moment. Uh, we had been wor- working in the industry for a while. We had a lot of different capabilities. And at the same time, we, our personal situation was like, quite comfortable. We had, we have saved money for a while. We didn't have any families uh, that depended on us. So I thought 
I think it was like now or never, right? And right. for me, it is really, really important. First, the industry and the the purpose and the vision of the company I'm going to work at. But obviously, the most important thing is the people uh, you're joining forces with. It's like a marriage. We spend a lot of time together. And I think um, that's like the best decision that we, we made that joined the three of us. We got along very well. We were friends, but we weren't so, so, so close. So I think it was like the perfect timing. Hey, in 2022, many of us expect this to be the largest deployment of solar in the history of solar on the planet, especially here in the United States. And there's a question I hear a lot of operations and maintenance folks and asset managers pondering, and that is, how should I use drones for my large solar site data and information gathering? What about my commercial sites? Should I perhaps instead be using one of those manned aircraft aerial imagery platforms? Well, my friend Mark Culpepper from DroneBase answers that very question in episode 433. So I'd encourage you to tune in to that Tactical Tuesday episode and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. You know, it's the time of year where folks start moving around from business to business, job to job, career transition is at its peak. And it's often a time where folks look to someone else to help organize their thoughts and guide their principles. I've spent the last 15 years in renewables. I've spent the last five years coaching founders and startup executives in this space specifically. And for the last year, I've been helping folks transition out of oil and gas and other industries into renewables. And I've found that there are a few things that are commonalities. I'd like to invite you, if that sounds like something you're interested in, to have a conversation with me about whether or not coaching might be in your future and working with me might be something that would help level up your business or your personal career path. You can fill out an application over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the work with me button in the very top right. And everyone who fills out an application, I'm going to set up a 15 minute clarity call. So I'd invite you to run, fill that out. If this sounds remotely interesting to you and let's have a chat, see if there is in fact a fit. I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Suncast. Let me know if I can help you in other ways. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know, I can hardly believe it myself. But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. How did you think about dividing and conquering in those early days? And I'd like to, we'll get into a little bit in a little bit, the, the way that you funded the company, kind of how you focused on building the product versus building customer base. But first and foremost, there were three of you as co-founders 
how, how did you all sort of slice up that pie on who does what? So I am the CEO. I run the business development team, the strategy, the fundraising, like the coordinate the orchestra, we'll say. One of my co-founders, Miguel Angel, he is the COO and he leads the operations and also the product team, the customer success, customer support, the specifically energy engineering team. And Juan, he's the CTO and he leads the software development team with the different teams that we have in, in software, the algorithmia team, cybersecurity, front, backend, design. It's interesting when you say Miguel Angel as the COO is head of product and then, and then the CTO is head of software. And I feel like your product is software. Can you make that distinction for me? Sure. So product for us is more the, the electrical engineering. Ah, right. The output. Okay. Not the how to make the output, but does it, is it right? Exactly. Okay. So let's say that our product team is run by industrial or civil engineers and the software team yeah. by software engineers. Well, you know, you all had leadership roles in prior entities before starting your own company. And a lot of times our early jobs, and certainly yours, I expect this to be true, they provide us with a foundation of knowledge. It's transferable skills, if you will, if you're coming from another industry, but they are stepping stones that allow us to operate more efficiently ourselves in executive roles when we, when we sort of grow up. As a founder and executive in your own company now, what tools from your previous role, and not, not even necessarily just at Solida, but when you were in the embassy, the, the various aspects of your work life help you now as an entrepreneur and leader in your company. Maybe they're mental models. They might be management tools. They may just be things that you learned along the way about how to deal with people. But can you package some of the core skills that help you be effective as a CEO now? I think from my previous role, what I take more than tools, what I take is the learnings about how to start a business in, in Brazil. I never worked in Spain before opening Rated Power. Building a team, understanding the market, the industry, understanding who is who, being empathetic with the customers and maybe organizing myself in, in starting. I started to struggle with time management because I used to travel a lot and lead a team. So that's what I mostly uh, think I learned. And also being aware about cross-cultural issues, which um, negotiation and which helps a lot today. But for sure, at Rated Power, I learned uh, most of the tools and frameworks that I use today. Um, like, for example, the OKRs methodology, the objective, objectives and, and key results. And in terms of tools, I know thousands of them. I, I tested a lot of them. And, and now we are obsessed. We've always been obsessed. It's in our DNA. Do it once. Just try to automate everything and being as, as efficient as we can. So I can speak for a long time about the resources and the tools and frameworks that I use. But for sure, I learned most of them at Rated Power, which was like an MBA, more like 30 MBAs in four years. Yes. <laughs> yeah. From one entrepreneur to another, I see you. I hear that. And it is the most common theme of anyone I know who started a business. I've been involved in five startups and I coach three other startups right now. And Every single time someone comes to me and says, should I go get an MBA? My answer is, what do you want to do with the MBA? Because if it's 
go get an MBA to start a company, then just start a company. (laughs) (laughs) Just start a company. You're going to, you're going to have, you're going to be further along. That's fantastic. I love that you said, I can speak a long time about tools and how you learned to manage your time. I may tuck you up on that, but I'll have to circle back around to it if we have time. You did mention something that I think is worth probing because what you are involved in right now for Rated is exactly what many of our listeners have done. And it's what you specialized in when you moved from Spain to Brazil, and that is understanding and entering into new markets. When you think about the customer, one of the things that as a business owner, you have to think about is not just who is your ideal customer, but where is your ideal customer? And that determines where you start and where you expand into based on the relevant skills that you can uh, that you can layer in, like let's start in our home country because of all our network and our language, et cetera, et cetera. As you think about expansion outside of your core offering or your core com- country, what do you look for in your first new market? And what sort of resources or questions are you asking as you seek to answer the question, is this the right next step? So from the beginning, we started as a global company. We, I don't identify myself, uh, ourselves like a Spanish company because our first customer was from Argentina. Our second customer was from Switzerland, I think. And uh, we have people from, when we were 20 people, we, we had people from over 10 nationalities. And um, the official language is English. And we have companies all over the world as customers. But um, what we do is to split the markets into key accounts and account executives and SDRs, so their development representatives uh, that understand that market with prior experience on that or or either, I don't know, maybe they've never worked with that country, but then they study a lot the industry, how it works, which are the players there, the organizations, all the different politics and, and legislations. And then they understand how to make business in that market. And it's really different. And we even uh, send people with specific skills to a specific market because they they fit better against to others that um, maybe they might have other qualities for another specific market. So you guys decided that you were going to create effectively a PPV design company. So I'm going to oversimplify things and I want you to help me sort of put things in their right order or, or parameters and perspectives. Most folks in the industry would think of like PV design as, as Helioscope or Aurora, uh, now one company, PV Complete. There's a bunch of companies here in the United States that do PV design and, it, and they kind of fa- fall into residential, commercial, industrial, or utility scale. My experience selling you and building utility scale uh, is that the world of actually utility scale design just falls into CAD. Help me understand what you are doing differently in the marketplace. Like how, how did you think about creating a business that is differentiated and, uh, and that folks, and that would, and would help scale the industry? Absolutely. So when we started, we went out there to find, okay, we have this pain where we have this need and let's try to find something to, to help us in, in that regard. And we couldn't find anything. That's why we started the company. So today there is no global software to fully automate not only uh, that we do the AutoCAD and the layout with all the different layers and, mm-hmm. and everything, but we generate over 300 pages of detailed documentation, engineering documentation. We provide wow. the CAPEX, the financial uh, forecast. We, pro- we, we take into account the geotechnical, the topography. So it's not just about the optimization and the design of the layout, 
but also um, we are trying to to add value in the whole uh, value chain of design and engineering until detail engineering, and then moving also towards um, taking other stakeholders in, into consideration. For example, um, the financial guys, uh, the, 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 the development team, but also the EPC team. So we are right now focusing in the whole design and engineering uh, value chain and also considering moving toward other technologies as well. And we develop also the tool for the substation and the interconnection. We're working in the transmission line. I know well uh, Aurora, I know Sam, I know the poles in Helioscope, I know PV complete very well. We are not a plugin for AutoCAD, so we are a SaaS, an online platform. It's collaborative. Um, anyone in the team can join from anywhere and work in the same project. And we have unlimited users, unlimited designs, and you can just have your batch of simulations with the different parameters and criteria and just run the different results and sort out the best configuration and the best analysis. So that's what we do. And we work, we operate in large scale only. A megawatt and above? Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating. Uh, I can see that you are covering a, a very comprehensive problem set for developers in terms of automating something that would otherwise take time and human resources to accomplish. If I could back out to another to 10,000 feet again, I want to think about organizationally. A lot of entrepreneurs struggle with whether they should go raise money to do a business or if they have a stockpile of cash, they can just sort of do it themselves. You had mentioned a few minutes ago that, that you guys were in a good position professionally where you had some money saved. Did you guys bootstrap this project? And if so, how long did you have to bootstrap it before you, you know, before you decided that you needed another, another sort of impetus of growth? Exactly. Yeah, we bootstrapped until summer uh, 2021. And mm. uh, it's been really an adventure. We decided to bootstrap at the beginning because we thought we needed a bit of time to test our solution, to validate it. To, we launched an MVP, a minimum viable product. But we weren't sure about how easy it was going to be to commercialize it. And, and the so you bootstrapped for three years. Yeah. Now, if there's anything I know about companies that bootstrap for three years, either you were incredibly wealthy or you reached break even pretty quickly. Yeah, we reached re break even in the second month. In the what? In the third month, if you consider our, sal uh, our salaries. Yeah. 90 days to break even. Yeah. Okay. Next question. <laughs> is break even paying yourself market rates? Yeah. So the good thing was that the good or bad thing, but I think at a certain point it was positive. We didn't know about the VC world. We we didn't think that it was an option to raise money just to start something yeah. that we didn't have results or KPS or anything. So we just built a business plan and we said, okay, what's yeah. the minimum viable product? We can start commercializing and selling and how many months we have as runaway and and when do, mm -hmm. do will be when will be uh, possible to to just uh, start having a salary? So what we said so we said okay so we have three months to work without any salary and let's try to 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 just start and commercialize the, this MVP that we have. Uh, let's just start asking our customers. I think we waited too way too long and that's one of my advices always to the to the different entrepreneurs. Waited too long to do what? To launch your product to the market, just 
Got it. Um, we were very perfectionist and we were, okay, like, how, how are you going to go to Angie with this crappy product and ask them for their opinion? And it's, it's well, you can do it. So we waited um, until we just coded for, for some months. And then when we decided that we had a, a good enough product, we opened the company and we, we went to the market. And in the third month, we already had two customers as and as they pay annual subscriptions and they pay upfront for the whole year, that made it possible to us to very quickly start um, getting, surviving just with the customer's revenue. You said something that you always tell some somebody to do it earlier. And I actually thought you might be talking about raising money because at the expense of maybe offending some of our friends who found it difficult, because sometimes it can be difficult, I find it's it's beautiful when you've got such a wonderful product that your response is, I wish I had known it would be this easy to raise money. <laughs> and I remember you said to me like, oh, <laughs> I didn't think it would be as easy to raise our series A. I would have done it earlier. So we'll, we'll get into that in a second, but I want to make sure people listen, or heard the, the takeaway. And then you can talk about um, kind of the, the next evolution when you knew it was time to raise money, which is don't wait forever to get your MVP in front of prospective customers. And, and this is now become time-honored truth, but I, I find it amazing how many entrepreneurs just sort of sit away for three, four months, hoping that they're building something people are going to like. And it's you know great for you guys that you were able to get not one, but two subscriptions paid up front, which means you can now sort of amortize over six to seven months while you get more customers, the amount monthly that you need to pay your, your founding team and staff, which is fantastic. Kudos for that. At what point did it become clear to you that you were going to need to go seek out outside funding to really achieve that next level of growth? So, yeah, just for clarification, I know it's not easy to, to raise, uh, but what I mean is that there there's <laughs> a lot of liquidity in the market and a lot of venture capital knocking yeah. and, and um, calling to a lot of startups because uh, they need to put that money yeah. somewhere. Uh, but then yeah. the process is really is highly complicated. And, and obviously we got a lot of no before we got a yes. So we decided it was a good moment to raise the first year, but then we got one uh, Spanish government grant, not too much money, but it was like 2050K. We decided it was the right moment to start raising about one year after founding the company. And and then we got one, one Spanish government grant that it was 250K euros. And then the next year when we said, okay, now is a good time. We need to go faster and hire more people. We don't have resources enough. Uh, we're losing a lot of customers because we're not doing a lot of properly the customer success um, follow-up and, and everything, the support. And we didn't have any sales force. I was the only one selling, but we had, I, I was doing so many other things at the same time. So we decided it was a good moment. And then we got a European Commission grant that it was 1.7 million um, euros equity free. So it was great. So in total, we got like 2 million euros as equity free grants and with some programs, accelerator programs and everything. Who suggested that you go after non-dilutive grant money? No way. Was that something internally? Yeah, it was no? something we did internally. We, we thought, okay, if we do this, uh, we will be in a better position to raise money. Yeah. We won't be so diluted and, and we'll have like more KPIs, better cap KPIs and better, a more power, a better position to, I don't know, to get to a serious speed. And I don't know if it's the right 
decision. I think I'm very happy with how we did things, uh, but obviously we don't have a crystal ball to to see uh, how things would have been otherwise if we had raised before yeah. earlier. Um, but what I learned was that to generate 250k, we needed that money before yeah. to generate 2 million we needed 2 million from the european commission and then we were able uh-huh. to, to generate 2 million so that's something i learned that's very common in the in SaaS b2b we recently raised our series C, series a uh, it was just six million dollars which is not um a lot compared to to other startups that we know in our and and that was stage. really recently right exactly but we already have revenue and we thought that it was the money that we needed for the next few years to take the company to the next level so we we done this card to raise much another round soon and you raised the series a recently right just in yeah, just coming out of the in summer. summer yeah what do you think attributes to the early success? There's many examples of companies that spend two, three months creating a minimum viable product and software, and they don't get two cornerstone clients like that that can basically fund the, the business operations without needing external capital. What do you attribute to that early success? I think the key was to understand very well the customer being in their skin for so many years and working so closely to the development teams and engineering teams, to the PC companies, to the investors and um, funds and banks, we learned very well the way they think, um, where exa- what is exactly they, that they need, right? I think that was the, the main reason uh, of the success. And then also being very close and very, very humble, um, making them understand that we were just starting the three of us, that we, when we needed their feedback, their inputs, and um, trying to engage with them. Were these folks that you had already previously worked with in other, in other entities or other opportunities? Maybe like the, tangentially, you, maybe you knew them in the market? Like the first customer? No. The second one? No. Uh, certainly in, within the 10, 20 first customers, we had a bunch that we already knew from, Sweet. from our- So the first two clients weren't folks that you had been in some way sort of, I mean, what I'm getting at is often to achieve positive cash flow early, it, it is because you have access to clients, right? You can know, you can know the so customer really a, well. I, had, I know plenty. I had a great network of contacts. Um, that's without any doubt, uh, one of the reasons where, why we, we started having customers very soon, but, um, the first customers were my customers in my previous experience. They, I knew them. Yeah. I met them in some events. We had a con- we have been in contact for, for some months or, but I didn't have any specific or special relationship with them. I had with some others. And it's funny because I always laugh at the fact that my friends in the industry were the last customers that I got. But yeah, of course, um, the fact of me being in the industry, working in business development for so many years um, helped us a lot. But it's also true that I thought when we started that Brazil was going to have to be our main market. And then it was when Bolsonaro came and and the, the government uh, subsidiaries stopped in, in the renewable energy in, in Brazil. It goes to show how external factors can have a massive impact exactly. on your business. And, and like, what a, what a tremendous success story to have originally identified one country as your target market. And when it blows up to still be successful and cash flow positive without outside uh, capital, that's a remarkable, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's worth, it's worth a, a round of applause. And I commend you guys for doing that. It's rare that you see 
a young founding team that can pivot quickly away from a market that implodes around them, um, which those of us who are following, like <laughs> we're well aware of how, uh, how the Brazil market changed. I have to imagine though, that there were things that you look back on and there were steps you wish you maybe had taken or conversely, like steps that you did take that you kind of regret. Can we talk about some of those? Yeah, I think, for example, as I said, uh, going to the market earlier, we also took many decisions based in, a, in maybe 10 customers that we had, but the market is much bigger. So understanding that you have to have a, a critical mass of opinions and of feedback to implement specific features, because maybe we were very biased mm. by specific markets, but it wasn't necessarily the the most common thing in other countries. So I think those were our main mistakes. And also being like careful about speaking with competitors. Uh, I learned that after a couple of years, but at the beginning we were like, oh my God, so secretly, uh, I don't know, like keeping the information to ourselves and everything. And now we're very open. I speak with all my competitors often. I even- Wait, wait, wait. I want to make sure, I want to make sure that everybody's getting this. Nobody I know- I love that you're saying this, by the way, like no founders I know feel comfortable talking with their competitors. And it's one of the early questions I'll ask someone I'm coaching is like, how often do you speak with your peers running companies trying to take your customers away? Like how often do you talk together? It's not a very comfortable conversation that is necessary. And it always brings you positive things. Yeah. It's something that people fear. And I think if you approach it from the perspective that I'm sure that you do, like, hey guys, look, this is a big world. And there's room for more than one of us. So let's think about what the market needs. And obviously like not, how, what are you offering that I'm not offering, but where do we see trends? Where do we see things happening? What kind of questions are you asking the leaders of your, compet- your, com- your competitors? Well, I, I introduce ourselves. I, I tell them that I, that I think the market is big enough. And I also think it's important to understand where are they going? to maybe try to go to a different way because we are designing our roadmap right. and, and we are constantly evolving the software and the platform and we want to find those niches, those gaps in the market. Um, so that's pretty much what I do. Sometimes they just say, okay, so we want to do what you are doing and it's a bit <laughs> awkward. Uh, but in general, people, it's reasonable and um, you might know your exit. I don't know, the company that will eventually mm acquire you or the company you yeah. will be doing an M&A with. So I think it's really positive to understand uh, also what are those guys, what are their strengths, their weaknesses, and uh, how can yeah. we cooperate maybe. Andrea, I'm, I'd be curious to know, you know, when you think about developing your own communication skills and personal brand, does that enter into the equation of your desire to to start not one, but two podcasts uh, as a CEO with like very little time to, to focus on, you know, I'll say extracurricular activities. You know, for me, it was like a hobby. Um, I don't enjoy being in the spotlight or um, I've never thought about my personal brand. I almost, my social media are close to the public and I, I respect a lot of my privacy. Uh, but I think I started Boss Talk 6 which is a podcast where we interview in Spanish. We, we interview women that are doing amazing things in different areas and are breaking molds, breaking barriers. 
in different fields. And I just started doing this because one day I was speaking with some friends and I realized that we didn't have any role model, feminine role model, any female role model in any of the industries we're working at. And we were, the three of us working in male predominated male industries. And we thought it was interesting to hear what those, what many women uh, that were pioneers had to say. And also uh, the way you're interviewing me today, like just a coffee with friends, uh, understanding how did they started, um, what was their motivations and who they had as role models when they grow up. And we wanted to create new role models for the young generations. So I started to do that as a hobby. And then I realized all, like how important it is to make this, um, this work of divulgating information and helping others to learn about specific things. And that's why we started Ogami in Spanish in Rated Power, because we got a lot of questions about storage, about how the, the energy industry works the prices of the energy, how, how are them modelized? Um, many questions that a lot of people not working in the industry had or even working in the industry. What was an EPC company? Um, what is the hydrogen and all of this? So we decided that it was a good a good thing to do. And also, it's also like one responsibility that we have. When you think back on the development of your own career and now you as a CEO are developing other folks into their roles, what are some of the important takeaways from mentors that you that have helped you and that potentially you pass along to others like very, being very organized and methodic in in sales in marketing understanding the funnel understand not doing things like just by inertia but having a, a real methodology is a science and um and we developed a lot of processes in like the in customer success as well and and that's something I, I love le- also learning about and and explaining my team about. And also, I think uh, leadership. I love try to, trying to, to teach the new leads about people management and how to motivate their peers, how to um, having the best talent, um, really like sharing the same values, fighting for the same goal and the same vision. And that's something I really enjoy. When you think about the the phenomenal interviews with female leaders on Vostok, which we're going to link to in the show notes for folks that might want to go and listen to that. It's in Spanish. You know, are there, are there one or two gems that for you stand out that you, you think, gosh, I learned this through doing the podcast and, and it's something that just really meant a lot to me? So it's funny because we always prepare a lot of the interviews and it's true that they always surprise us. We interview very famous Spanish um, female entrepreneurs and journalists yeah. and singers and everything. And some others are not that known. And when we know, when we think that we know the person, they are never the person that we think they are. It's really interesting. Oh, yeah. And if we interview a, a very, really aggressive journalist uh, interviewing really like Obama and, and many important people around the world, then she told it, in this case, she told us that she's really shy and and she, I don't know, there are always things that we didn't expect. And it's super interesting. Yeah. I believe that readers are leaders and often leaders 
our readers, I'd love to know if there is a book that has particularly influenced the way that you think about leadership or managing a business, or maybe just your own personal development that you'd recommend to the Suncast audience. So lately I've been a lot into time management and also about Mm -hmm. leading teams and leadership in general. I love that. So I would, I can tell you about some books. Uh, I have a, a very big I have a a huge list I will be able to give you. But for example, one book I really enjoyed was Never Split the Difference um, about negotiation or um, um, Start with Why. That's a great leadership book. Um, I enjoyed. We're huge Chris Voss fans here. I enjoyed a lot Radical Candor. I I read it Mm, and I recently read it again. Um, And I think. Uh, it has a lot of learnings. Nonviolent communication was another one that I read last month that I enjoyed. Marshall Ransberg, and the one that cool. I'm I'm reading right now is Make Time. That it's uh, yeah, it's I think it was two Googlers, ex Googlers that so you're, wrote you're, it. So you're clearing all the notifications and making the simplest. Uh, home screen on your phone exactly. possible, right? Yeah. I, I, it's a fantastic book. I, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's impossible to take all like all the information and apply everything to your life. But if you only take like oh, yeah. three or five takes and you implement them in your daily basis routine, it's really, really useful. Andrea, I could ask a million more questions, but I want to respect the fact that it's getting late for you over in Spain. And I'm really grateful that you joined us for Suncast. Uh, where do you like to be found if folks wanted to reach out and try to connect with you? I think this, the easiest thing is to reach me through Twitter or LinkedIn. Yeah. All right. We will link to those. And what's your Twitter handle? Andrea Barber L altogether. Okay, at Andrea Barber L. So again, we'll link to that in the show notes. Well, Andrea, let's end today, as we always do, with one bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I think hybrid wind solar power plants um, will play a crucial role in our future energy system. I think multi-technology parks are more than just a market trend that we are starting to see out there, combining Power in general and batteries allows these parts to be much more cost-effective and sharing the infrastructure such as roads, grid connections, substations, or even the support support the grid stability, right? So that's something we are starting to consider to, to understand to yeah, we want to implement it in the in the software. We're trying to understand how to do it. <laughs> but yeah, in, in Europe we have, I don't know, about 10 a bit less than 10 hybrid wind solar power plants. And I think that's the future. And well, we have we still have a road to go um, in terms of governments and, and legal, yeah. legal frameworks to to work on that. But if the if the governments provide a clear definition on on that, I think in the permitting and everything, I think that can help a lot the the energy transition. Andrea Barber is the CEO and co-founder of Rated Power. And we have had a phenomenal time here learning about her journey to start this company. And uh, I'm really grateful that you joined us here on Suncast today, Andrea. Thank you so much, Nico. It was my pleasure. What a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Andrea, for joining us. Thank you for putting up with uh, an, an inter- interview in English. I promise I'll get you an interview in Spanish. And para, para ustedes latinos que están esperando todavía que hagamos español, in, in Suncast, pronto viene. If you have others that are Latinos that speak English and that we can do potentially English and Spanish conversations, 
bring them on because I'd love to do them and we're definitely considering a, a, a Spanish version of Suncast. So stay tuned for that. Well, Solar Warrior, that is a wrap on today's conversation. And I am positive that you took a ton away, especially if you're in project development or software development, or you're thinking about launching into a platform and service side of the business. Few people that I've met have thought so thoroughly about how to run a business without dilutive equity. A lot of folks will raise money and I'm really impressed with Andrea and the Rated team for not raising money. Kudos for your series A. If you, my fellow Philomath are interested in learning more, and I know you are, then you can go grab the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion. Click on the episodes tab of our website over at mysuncast.com. And we've got the social media links that we just discussed, the books. I think there were five that Andrea recommended there, including my personal favorite, Never Split the Difference. Uh, If you haven't listened to episode 101, you can go back and do that because that is our interview with none other than Mr. Chris Voss and the Never Split the the Difference Black Swan Group method of negotiation, which is an absolutely crucial piece of your toolkit if you don't have it. Hey, since I know you're going to be online, I would love it if you jump on LinkedIn and let us know, what did you think of this episode? Think it was good? Think there were things that we could have done better? Andrea and I would like for you to connect with us and give us a a, a thumbs up on the post that I made for this episode and, and leave a comment. Let us know how we can make it better for you. If you haven't yet rated the podcast. It's super easy. Go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. I would be incredibly grateful. And I am going to be starting soon to read those ratings here as a way of thank you for those who have left them. So thank you for that. I've seen a few come in recently and right this moment, I don't have them in front of me, but I will in, in some of the, in some of the forthcoming episodes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hope you'll join us next week. Well, we'll have another Tactical Tuesday and practical long-form interview like this one on navigating your career in clean energy. Thanks again to our sponsors who help make all of this free to you each and every week. You can learn more about them as well as how you could partner with us here on Suncast to reach thousands of solar warriors and climate champions just like you. That's at mysuncast.com as well. Be pretty obvious what button to click on there. And remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.